From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Robert Boynton. Anthony Appiah is professor of philosophy and law at New York University. Before coming to NYU, Appiah taught at Princeton, Harvard, Cornell, Duke, and Yale. Appiah has published two technical studies of the philosophy of language, eight books about ethics and culture, and three novels. He is also the ethics columnist of the New York Times Magazine. His most recent book, The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity, was published in 2018. Anthony, thank you for joining us at the New York Institute for Humanities podcast. Very glad to be here. One might read your work from In My Father's House in 1992 to The Lies That Bind in 2018 as an extended critique of essentialist thinking. So first off, how do you define essentialism? Essentialism gets defined in different ways in different parts of the humanities. In, in philosophy, it's often used to define technical uh, issues in metaphysics, but that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the idea that you should understand forms of identity by supposing that people who share an identity have some deep internal property that explains why they have the shared identity and that goes with things that are both of descriptive and usually of some kind of normative importance. So it's not just that all the Ghanaians um, are um, people who have citizenship in Ghana, but they're also people who have responsibilities to Ghana. So there's a kind of mixture of normative and descriptive. So it's that package of ideas. And it seemed that in the earlier parts of your career, you focused on essentialism as it articulated itself in race issues uh, and the sort of deleterious effects of thinking about race in biological terms. H- how is your work grown from that back in, you know, 25 years ago in the 1990s to today? Well, I think that I probably tended then to overrate the significance of the intellectual errors that underlie uh, racial identity, but this turns out to be true of all the forms of identity that I think have problems. I mean, it's a task of intellectuals to be clear about the errors, but the damage they do it doesn't turn out to be corrected simply by persuading people of the falsehood of some of these claims. In later work, I've stressed more the role of the kind of social dialogue around identity, of the fact that identities are a sort of common possession. They don't just belong to the people who have them. They belong to all of us. And so if we want to change gender, we can't just let women change gender. We can't just let trans people change gender. We have to change it together. And that means there's a negotiation because what suits some people doesn't necessarily suit everybody else. And the same is true about racial identities. But the really important question is how are we going to negotiate the social meaning of being African-American, Asian-American, white American, Korean-American? How are we going to work on that? And as I say, the point about that is that while, uh, say, Korean-Americans have a special place in the discussion about Korean-American identity... because it's a common possession, they don't own it, and they have to they have to persuade, they have to do politics, uh, conversation, cultural work, to persuade the rest of us to shape it the way they want. It seems like your intellectual pursuits have changed over the years. So you were originally trained as a philosopher of language, but as your career progressed, you began using your technical training to correct the way our culture misuses language. For instance, in The Lies That Bond, you try to undercut the various false histories and images that surround us. Do you think that you've become more of an activist? Unlike Plato, I don't think that you should put the philosophers in charge, (laughs) even if you give them special training. Um, Despite the current state of things, I still believe in democracy. I still believe that society has to be run by consulting everybody. And so 
what philosophers can do in those public conversations is help people to think about them so that they can see that they don't have to be trapped in the old essentialist pictures. They don't have to think that there's a kind of compulsory content to African-American identity, that it's up for grabs, up for negotiation, what to do with the history, what to do with the social situation. But then, you know, they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. You can't tell people what to do because you don't know enough about them. I mean, nobody knows enough about the lives of other people to settle all these questions for them. That's one of the great insights of liberalism, I think, is that people are the best managers of their own lives, as John Stuart Mill says something like that in On Liberty. But it seems that one of the things you've become much more interested in is sort of the empirical status of of these people. You've been doing this very interesting work on experimental philosophy, uh, looking at ethical dilemmas, much more concrete than perhaps you would have done as a philosopher of language. Yes. I mean... One of the charms of philosophy of language when I started doing it in the 70s as an as a undergraduate and a graduate student was that you didn't have to look at the world very much. You could just consult your own uh, linguistic intuitions and, uh, and read books by other people who had consulted their linguistic intuitions. But that turns out to have been a feature of analytic philosophy in the period between the Second World War and the sort of 70s and 80s which I think was a mistake. Contemporary philosophy of language, for example, is much more closely related to empirical linguistics than than it was when I did. I wrote a book about conditionals, if-then sentences. I I didn't look at a corpus of if-then sentences. I didn't ask any normal speakers of the language. I just consulted my own sort of thoughts about it. So I think a kind of eye to the world is especially important in social political philosophy and in ethics, and especially when you're thinking about things like identities, which are just made in history. Essentialism isn't wrong about everything. Maybe it's true of phosphorus, that the inner nature of phosphorus explains all the phosphorus's behavior. But one reason it's wrong about, about us is that we're biological creatures, and one of the important insights in the philosophy of biology is that biology is a historical science, because evolution is a historical process. What it is to be a species is to have reached a certain point in a historical process. And the process is the interesting thing. The point where you are along the process isn't all that interesting. Um, that's why Darwin wrote a book called The Origin of Species. is about the process of speciation, not about species themselves. So I think you just can't say sensible things about the philosophical question, which is, what is race? You can't say sensible things about that unless you have some sense of the, the anthropology, the sociology, the history. And I would say the kind of literary place of these concepts, because these concepts for modern societies where most people are literate and most people um, absorb fictions, those fictions structure our understanding of obviously gender, but equally race and nation. You're something of a polymath. You write about technical philosophical problems. You write essays. You write novels. You even write an advice column, for God's sake. How do you make the transition from one form to the other? And is there a common thread that runs through all this work? I, first of all, very much had a vocation as a philosopher. I thought of myself as a philosopher for the beginning. But I I think that I feel now that my, that my right place in the ecology, as it were, is as an intellectual, where an intellectual is someone who's trying to understand the world. Intellego means I understand. And who's just sort of puzzled by the world and trying to make sense of it. And then, of course, it's a public role, the intellectual role. So you're helping other people to make sense of things. In these different kinds of writing, you're always having to think, obviously, about who you are talking for and to and what they already know and what they don't know. I don't want it to feel like I'm writing down. I just want to be making it as as uncomplicated as I can, given that we're dealing with very complicated matter. 
One thing I feel I've learned a lot in the years since I wrote in my father's house is that narrative understanding is one of the great forms of human understanding. It's easier for people than other kinds of understanding. It's easier, I think, than causal understanding. And so that if you can explain an idea through a story, it could be a true story, it could be a piece of history, or it could be a fiction, that's often going to hold in people's heads better than if you give them a kind of formal, logical uh, answer to the question. So to the extent that one can see race, for example, as something that has a story of its production, how did, how did it come to be that people did things this way, people will remember your view about what we've got as a result of that historical process better if they have a story about how it came into being. The word identity appears in the titles of five of the books you've uh, written or edited, but in The Lies That Bind, you choose not to address the question of why the topic of identity has become so uh, fraught these days. So why do you think it has? I mean, again, I think the only way to answer that is to tell a story about the process through which it happened. So one thing that I think happened in the North Atlantic world where these issues have a particular shape, I think has partly to do with the fact that in the early 20th century, politics was significantly organized around two things, nation and class. So the rise of socialist parties, the Labour Party in England, the Social Democrats in Germany, that process was the rise of a, of a class politic. It was a very important form of politics because it was part of what raised the baseline of life for people in the North Atlantic world in the way that uh, the New Deal did in the United States. Of course, immediately after the Second World War, uh, the Labour Party effectively creates the modern welfare state in, in Britain. So, so that, that process reaches its, as it were, achievements, its great achievement uh, at that point. And so, and through the 60s, this goes on. But in the meanwhile, partly because it succeeded, partly because the working class has been, to some extent, lifted up, uh, now you can attend to the great question that the Social Democrats started asking in Germany in the late 19th century, which is, we have a notion of what it is to lead a decent life. It's the life of the educated bourgeoisie. How can we make that life available to everybody? How can we make working people give them the education, the access to culture and music and, and literature and the arts? Of course, that wasn't fully achieved, but we did get universal education. We got universal health care. We got unemployment insurance. We got all sorts of things that lay, meant that the life at the bottom was really wasn't great, but it was way better than it had been. And one of the results of that was uh, the class politics came to seem less urgent, I think. And so what you see in the 60s, in all of these places, is the rise of other ways of organizing politics. Clearly, feminism is, is one of those. The black consciousness movement in the United States is another of those. These are all forms of politics that are organized around an identity. It's not a class identity. And they uh, come to assume a significant place. All of those issues came to be very important in, in politics. Well, one of the things that happened as a result of all that was that what had been minorities in these cultures, in these societies, came to occupy a kind of central place in people's thinking about politics. Questions of racial justice, questions of regional justice in Europe. And I think that the result of all that was that majorities came to think of politics as being, for the first time perhaps, as in part about 
a sort of ethnicized identity, not a national identity, but an identity that's in, in that way like a national identity. It's based on descent, uh, D-S-C-E-N-T, not mm. D-I-S-S-E-N-T. <laughs> and, it's, and it's based on the sense of sort of fellow feeling that's based in the, the sorts of sentiments that generate ethnicity. The French have this expression, the, the Français de souche, the, the deep French. There's that sense that in France, there are these white people who've been there all along, and they're the real French. You can be nice to brown people and, and Muslims. You can even give them citizenship because citizenship is a universal concept. But they're not, as well, you, you define Frenchness, you're the real French. In the United States, that was never very explicit in the mainstream. There have always been that kind of white nationalist in the United States, but they were a minority. Now, people said, this is not a white man's country. This is a country for all of us. Uh, we are all here, not just the ones who came on the Mayflower, but the, everybody who came since, and including the ones who came on the slave ships. So, I think that having grown up, many of them, in a world in which the one thing they had was the certainty that their ethnic identity defined the national identity, to have a black president, to have people constantly raising questions about racism, has been destabilizing. And we have to remember that for the white working class in the United States, in a way, the racial deal always was, we don't give you money, we don't give you good jobs, but we give you the privilege of being white. And so I, you can see why, if that's how you've thought of it, you can see how that would lead people to a kind of politics of resentment. And how does one address this politics of resentment? You have to listen to them. I think you can't just tell them to shut up and tell them they're stupid and deplorable. But you also, I think, have to give them something else. One of the things that seems to me just desperately urgent is to figure out the unemployment problems that are very central to some of this politics. Now, it's true that in some of the places where Donald Trump did well, unemployment rates among white people were not particularly high. So I, I don't think it's not just a story about unemployment. But, but even if the unemployment rates went high, they were often people who didn't see an economic future in the way that, that, that their parents would have seen it as something in which they could expect their kids yeah. to. They had jobs, but they didn't really have work. They didn't have real work. Yeah. And you know, a job is an income, sociability, and meaning. And lots of jobs are just income and not very much income. So they're employed, but they don't feel they're doing something significant. And... This connects, I think, with the gender politics because a lot of what's available is less obviously male-gendered and the idea of the man who gains a sense of identity in part by being the, the breadwinner for the family doing this significant thing in the world outside but, but also sustaining the family. Again, that's difficult because um, you can't sustain a family now with this one income uh, adequately and so on. So I think you know we haven't really done enough to think about how we're going to move forward with with work, not not just jobs, but real work, and that's my next project. Actually, is to is to work uh, with some colleagues in economics and social science, generally, to think about you know, what we can say about how to try and solve some of those problems. You do a terrific job of unpacking the language, uh, conceptual and also uh, you know vocabulary we use to construct our identities. But you also note that there's an unavoidable tension between the clarity of philosophical concepts and the instrumental value of political ones. As you put it in my father's house, you say the real political question is when we should endorse the ennobling lie, mm -hmm. the myth that binds groups together. Do we at some point have to ignore the painstaking conceptual work you've done in order to get something political done? I've thought about it more than 
than I had when I wrote that. And in a way, the book As If, which I published uh, last year, is about why we can only grasp the world through imperfect pictures. So we have to live with imperfection in our pictures. All physical theorizing is idealized. You never model the system wholly, perfectly. We don't understand all sorts of dimensions of every system, and so we know that our models are imperfect. Well, that's true absolutely across the board. It's true in moral life as well. We don't have perfect moral pictures either. And so the issue is not so much truth, but something more like what Bernard Williams meant by truthfulness. That is, using, yes, simplified pictures, pictures that contain things that you know are not quite right, but not with an intention to deceive, but rather in order to move ahead. The difference between simplifying and lying has a lot to do with intention and motivation and whether you're trying to manipulate people or whether you're simplifying because you respect them, but you know that, that the full story is too complicated to work with now. You know, I don't think that I'm going to uh, refuse to support the NAACP because they have some theoretical commitment to a notion of black identity that I don't share. If they're doing the best work, anti-racist work, I'm going to support them. And I'm not going to waste their time telling them the ways in which I think they're wrong, unless the ways in which they think they're wrong are going to get in the way of doing the job. And then I, that's where philosophers are useful. They can say, look, we're stuck here. We're clearly not moving ahead. Here's a possible explanation of why we've, we're using the wrong picture or we've left something out of the picture that's really important. So on the one hand, it remains true in my thinking that what Renan said you know, in the, in the late 19th century about nationalism, that he said historical study is often the enemy of the nation because the nation wants to tell a certain story and historians want to look at the facts. And the facts don't always fit the story. Uh, and he also said correctly that nations are made by what they forget or what they decide to forget as much as by what they choose to remember. But, you know, those decisions about what to decide to forget are, are often the source of problems. So deciding to forget Thomas Jefferson's black descendants wasn't good for our country in the end. <laughs> We never forgot he was a slaveholder, so that's good. We recognize that. But sometimes I think some people have forgotten that he was conflicted about it. To make the past usable, you, you have to be both responsive to what's actually there in the evidence, but also willing to simplify the story uh, in ways that are necessary in order to get things done. And intellectuals like me are often bad allies because we're so bad at holding back from our copying criticisms. Do you think as a society we are regressing or progressing? I guess that means are the lies that bind growing stronger or are we learning to see through those lies? I feel temporarily pessimistic but medium and long-term optimistic. I do think that President Trump has degraded our public culture in a quite stupendous way and that it will take time to improve things back to sort of where they were when President Obama left us. But I, when I talk to students anyway, I have a, a strong sense of optimism. And they, after all, this is a generation that very swiftly, once the trans issue got out there, 
made a decision about what the right thing was to do. And now they're very strong on it. They, they are, I would say, to some extent, excessively critical of people who haven't made the move with them because it's a hard move to make. This is a linguistic one, you mean? or, or... Well, both the linguistic ones, the, the sort of, you know, um, him, her, choice of self-designation, pronouns and that sort of thing, which some older people like me... Uh, you know, we're having a hard time getting used to. And it's way, I mean, think about that's happening at the same time as the alt-right. And we should remember both of them, I suppose, is the point. So, yes, I'm, I'm moderately optimistic. But on the other hand, I think, you know, Gramsci said pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. It won't get better if we don't work at it. So uh, it's not a good idea to sit on our backsides and, and assume that history is going in the right direction. Uh, we have to make it go in the right direction. But I have confidence from at least from the young people I talk to, who are privileged because they are at a great university and most people aren't going to go to a great university and many people aren't going to go to a university at all. But still, I, I feel there's evidence that in that generation of a kind of set of a willingness to change themselves and an, and a, and an urgency about changing us, old, the older, older people, to getting us to see the things that they've seen. And I'm, I'm optimistic about that. In your book, you argue that every religious tradition contains a diversity of beliefs and practices. You also argue that we distort our understanding of a particular religion by fixating solely on its articles of faith and that we would do better to acknowledge the ways that each generation of religious followers changes its religion by interacting with it. But what can one say to a member of a fundamentalist group like maybe ISIS to open his eyes to this diversity among religions and even within his own? I mean, there are people in the world with whom conversation may not be worthwhile. <laughs> we often ask ourselves how we would persuade people like this of these things. But the first question we need to ask ourselves is how would we get them into conversation in the first place? How would we get them to the point where any amount of persuasion should be going on, could be going on? And if you think about that, you see that they're only going to be interested at all if you're willing to listen to them as well. That's what a conversation is. The deal in a conversation is that everybody gets to put something in. I think that listening to them, as some scholars you know, are doing, suggests points of pressure that you might have but they all depend upon knowing, as it were, the particular subgenre of Islamist thinking that you're dealing with. There's no general response possible. You know, one thing that's going on in Islam is, as many people have pointed out, something a bit like the Reformation, in the sense that interpretive authority is being claimed by everybody. Uh, that was not true in the Muslim world until relatively recently. It certainly wasn't true in the Christian world before the Reformation. And what happens, as happened in the Reformation, is, is what, hap what happens in the Reformation, in the Christian Reformation? You get split into a thousand sects. Now, that happens to be tied in this particular case of some of the Islamists in Africa and the Middle East to a series of anti-colonial resentments, resentments that have to do with the sense of having lost out in a great historical conflict with, uh, with Europe and its civilization. The, the question isn't whether the resentment is justified. The question is what it does to you. It's bad for you. It's, even if you're justified, it's bad for you. And so getting some more positive sense of yourself, not as someone who's defined by your hatreds, but as someone who's defined by your loves, as it were, by the things you're for rather than the things you're against, if there's a general thing to say about Islamism, 
and about fundamentalism in the Christian world. It's that. It's that fundamentalism is, is interesting enough. It's very much focused on the badness of others and much less on the goodness of us. And it produces horrible stuff. Anybody can get into this bad frame of mind. And how we're going to get particular subgenres of Islamism out of it, I don't I say, I don't think it's a general answer, but even in particular ones, I don't have much to say. I don't want to underrate the problem that in the end, the most substantial thing about fundamentalism today, and this is not just a point about Islam, is its lack of interest in conversation, which means listening as well as talking. It's a closed system. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, you think about these great civilizational traditions of philosophy, um, the one that grows out of Greece, the, China, the Confucian tradition, the many Indian traditions. For me, one of the great deep insights of the European one is fallibilism. It's the recognition of how difficult it is to get everything right. You suggest at one point in the book that we should give up on this idea of uh, so-called Western civilization. Uh, what do you mean by that? People who talk about Western Civ, because the courses in Western Civ start with the pre-Socratics or something, think that the idea of Western Civ is an ancient idea, but it's not really. Western Civ as an idea was really created after the First World War in order to rebind Europe. I mean, they just engaged in this huge, bloody, meaningless conflict in which they killed millions of people for no rememberable reason. And they and so people here in the United States as well as in Europe thought we need to stress what we have in common. Nothing wrong with that, of course. I like I like stressing what we have in common. But telling a story which suggests that this connection back to, say, Aristotle, whom I love, goes through an un, uninterrupted train where we have no choices about where to look, that, that at every moment it's right to pick the next person, the, 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 next, the next, as it were, genius holder of the Western Civ thing is there. This is, that's not how, it, it's not how it happened. It's not how it happens. And there's even the inconvenient historical fact that so many of the Greek philosophers who we now value were all preserved through Arabic. Yes. The texts themselves um, often survived somewhere in Europe, but they weren't being read in, in the period when Islam was growing in Europe, in, in Al-Andalus. But the, the interpretive background for those texts, that was sustained by the Arabs, philosophers uh, in places like Baghdad, who translated many of the Platonic and Aristotelian texts into Arabic and worked on them in Arabic, but who also kept up a scholarly understanding of uh, Greek in that community so that they could look at the text, the, the original text. So there's a story here. There's a true story about how particular texts passed. There isn't a true story about something called Western Civ that's sort of chundering along all the time and that has these things in it. And one of the most important things that I think is entirely left out of account by the Western Civ story is that whatever it is that explains the character of cultural and social life in France in the 12th century, it cannot be any of the things we mention in the context of Western Civ because people in those places didn't know about any of these people. They didn't speak uh, Latin or Greek and they didn't have translations into French of any of this stuff or into Occitan or whatever it was they were speaking in the different parts of France at the time. So once you think about what's involved, you can see that this can't be right. It's preposterous, I think, to suggest that Western civilization is a history of tolerance, the scientific spirit, uh, and democracy. So the idea that toleration is this great Western thing is ridiculous. We just have to 
pull back from all this. There's wonderful stuff back there, but the idea that it's all wonderful and that all the wonderful things we now have come from there just seems to me wrong. You have this wonderful metaphor of the golden nugget, yes. which is you know polished by each generation as it's sort of gently handed to the next. Right. And I, I think about people like uh, you know Heidegger or uh, Strauss and the way they feel the sort of this intimate connection to to Greece. And of course, in the case of those people, they didn't go back through the history in between. They just dive back into the fifth century uh, before the Common Era and have this kind of communing. If you want to understand what was going on in the fifth century, you do need to have some more historical sense. And one of the things that I think you need is a sense that somewhere like Athens was what it was, not because it was an essential essentialist nugget, but because it was at the crossroads of the intellectual world. The idea that there was sort of something that was dug out there and that it had nothing to do with anything else, I think that's, um, that's wrong. And also the, the intellectual context of those people is not really Europe. There's been a great debate recently about the politics of cultural appropriation. You seem to be in favor of it when it's done seriously and with due respect, but I wonder whether you're arguing for something a little more radical. Are you arguing that cultural appropriation is not just okay, but is in fact necessary in order for a society to progress? If you look at the high arts, the things that we take, say, from Western civ courses and say to people around the world, these are the ones from, as it were, the world we know that we would like you to be interested in. Shakespeare, Aristotle, Plato, uh, Goethe, none of them would work if they had cut themselves off from the cultural lives of other nations. We wouldn't have the German Enlightenment if they had thought that, oh, well, that's Greek, so it's not German, so we can't read that. Or it's Latin, so it's not us, so it belongs to the Southern Europeans. So is it logically possible to have a kind of art that's wonderful and uh, valuable for everybody and uninfluenced by anything from anywhere? Maybe, I don't know. But is the art we actually care about like that? Uh, I'd say overwhelmingly not. One of the key terms that comes up in your discussion of appropriation is care. You underscore the importance of genuinely engaging someone's culture, and you contrast that with the liberal fantasy of picking and choosing among world's cultures, sort of shopping in a way, as if identity were like a Spotify playlist that one could simply throw together. Yes. And one of the troubles with the Western Civ picture is it suggests that if you're a sort of white American, you own Rembrandt and Plato without doing a thing. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to go to museums. You don't have to read anything. It's yours. To the extent that these things matter, they matter because we work at them, because we study them, because we love them, and we can't love them if we don't know them. <laughs> if you try to think about what defines the sort of humanities, I think that it's our task to pass on to each generation the sense that that work is worth doing, that it turns out that your life is much richer if you have done things like work through um, a Horatian ode or really got to grips with what's going on in the book of Job. Because there's so much cultural stuff out there now and because so much of it is passively receivable, there's a tendency, I think, to a kind of presentism, to a kind of, well, there's plenty, plenty now here. Why, why do we need to look at anything from anywhere else? You could fill your lives and you could. You could fill your life entirely with worthwhile stuff produced here and now. Why should we know about Basho? Why should we know about these? Well, I think the answer is because it turns out that the world is a, is a wonderfully more interesting place and you're also more able to cope with it 
and also more able to interact uh, across space, uh, which is an essential task in the present, if you have done those things. Well, Anthony Appia, congratulations on your book. Uh, Once again, that's The Lies That Bind. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us at the New York Institute for Humanities podcast. Pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kandinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and, for their technical and design wizardry, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lakazi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, this is one word, nyihumanities.org.